This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we begin with another case for Philip Marlowe, played by Gerald Moore. He was an American radio, film, and television character actor and frequent leading man who appeared in more than 500 radio plays, 73 films, and over 100 television shows. How he became a radio actor is an interesting story. At Columbia University, where he was on course to become a doctor, Moore was struck with appendicitis and was recovering in hospital when another patient, a radio broadcaster, realized Moore's pleasant baritone voice would be ideal for radio. Well, he was hired by a radio station and became a junior reporter. In the mid-30s, Orson Welles invited him to join his formative Mercury Theater. And during his time with Welles, Moore gained theatrical experience on Broadway in The Petrified Forest. As well, he was one of the actors who portrayed Archie Goodwin in The New Adventures of Nero Wolfe, frequently starred in The Whistler and other radio programs like The Jack Benny Program, Our Miss Brooks Escape, and Lux Radio Theater. And the episode tonight is entitled Birds on the Wing. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the graves. They dress in red, white, and blue and jump from an ancient biplane at 3,500 feet. Twice a day, every day, and nobody worried. Until five million bucks went along just for the laugh, and death went along for the ride. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Birds on the Wing. It had been the kind of quiet, worthless week that speaks well for human beings and their relations with one another. It doesn't do much for a private detective's bank balance. So when at exactly noon, a telephone call had jerked me out of Chandler's new novel, The Little Sister, and a voice edged with anxiety had dangled a hundred bucks worth of negotiable bait my way, I had snapped at it. But then, I wondered if I'd done the right thing. Because it had been men much Hattie Pembroke, guardian of the millionaire thrill-seeking screwball Paige Pembroke. And now, an hour later, I left the sunlight and felt my way into the gloom of the carefully tucked away Hollywood bar where she had suggested we meet. When I could see again, I spotted her at a corner table. That the old girl would be the other side of 50 and doing a little too much to disguise it, I had expected. But that she would be drinking her whiskey neat, I hadn't. 
When I approached her and introduced myself, she started to come right to the point, but didn't quite make it. Oh, how rude of me. I'm sorry. You're probably dying for a drink. Oh, waiter. Well, frankly, no, Miss Pembroke. I'm not exactly dying. Oh, no, no, no. I know you men in your early afternoon appetite for a friendly drink. There's no harm in it. Matter of fact, I've already had... I've had a small drink myself. No fooling. A waiter, and this gentleman's order, please. Uh, yes, ma'am. What'll be, sir? Scotch and soda, if the lady will join me. Oh, no, no, I could not. Really? Well, all right. <laughs> it's scotch for me, too, waiter. Johnny Walker. Yes, now, Mr. Marlowe, let's get down to business. Have you ever been to Oxnard, California? Uh-huh. Good, because that's where my nephew is. Also, it's where the Calumet Valley County Fair is being held. Really? Whatever that may be. Most important, it's where you can probably find out what kind of trouble Paige is in. You see the poor boy... Down to his last five million bucks. Now, I'm sorry, Miss Pembroke. I don't think I want the job after all. Now, one moment. Why not? Well, frankly, I hope you'll excuse the reference to actual living persons, but your polo-playing, motorboat-racing, daredevil nephew is a jerk. Uh, I know. Paige Pembroke, the third, is an unmitigated ass, a virile egomaniac, an idiot who's never done an honest day's work in his life. Wait, where is that dream? Right here, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Now, Mr. Barlow, sit down and drink your drink. When I referred to my nephew as a poor boy in trouble, I was only trying to avoid saying all this. Oh. Your health, sir? Yes. Uh, well, my health. Now, your next question. Since I obviously share your sentiments about my nephew, why all this concern over him, correct? Uh, close. Right. I want to help Paige Pembroke, Mr. Marlowe, because it's my job. My, shall I say, bread and butter? All right, say it. You see, I'm executor of his estate, which my brother, Paige's father, left for him. Well, as such, I get $20,000 a year until Paige is 35, another six years. But if Paige should die, disappear, or be committed to any kind of a public institution... Hmm? Institution. Oh. Before then, the entire estate goes to charity, and I go find another job. And specialized jobs like handling $5 million estates are hard to come by these days, huh? Now, Mr. Marlowe, this letter here is all you have to go on. It was postmarked last night from Oxnard. Beep, beep. Oh. If you want your precious nephew to keep on being healthy, you better come and get him at once. The three of us had a nice little act going here at the Calumet Valley County Fair before he joined us just for laughs. We intend to have a nice little act going after he's gone. And one way or another, he's going to go. A friend, then. Yeah? What do you think? Oh, it's five to one. It's nothing more than a woman spurned. Very young woman, Miss Pembroke. So you might be wasting $100 sending me up there. Then you'll go. Go. Yeah, but only because of my bank account. Mr. Marlowe, there'll be another $100 for you if and when you get all this straightened out. Now, now, call me at my home, Beverly Hills. Crestview 5412. 4124? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, as soon as you find out what's wrong. And, oh, uh, oh, Mr. Marlowe. Yes, Miss Pembroke. On your way out, signal the waiter for me. Will you please... The ride to Oxnard was a pleasant but frustrating hour and a half drive along the kind of beckoning sun-scrubbed Pacific shoreline that always demands to know why you have to work for a living. The ride through Oxnard to the sprawling county fairgrounds located at a semi-retired airport was a fast ten minutes. 
So all in all, it was a little better than three o'clock. There was still a measure of boyish bounce in my stride when I started past the prized cows and plain and fancy leghorns and headed for the midway, looking for the act Paige Pembroke had joined just for last. But it was four o'clock and I had checked a half a dozen death-defying numbers before I was standing in front of a banner Columbus could have used for a sale. It said I was getting warm. In iridescent orange cloth on black, it read, The Plunging Comets. Taffy Star and Midge Maynard on wings of death with feelers steady nap at the controls. The greatest parachute act in the world, admission free. Five and nine p.m., north end of the midway. Come one, come all. <laughs> yeah, this had to be it. At the north end of the midway, just outside of a sagging, weather-peeled hangar, I found the World War I biplane that went with the plunging comets being mothered by a mechanic who didn't have grease on his face. And beyond that, on an inside wall of the hangar, were the parachutes used in the act, each on a separate hook, its owner's name carefully block-lettered on a card tacked above, Taffy, Midge, and Eddie. And then, scrawled in black crayon, the name I wanted most of all to see, Paige. Lost something, mister? The voice went with the woman and the woman with the egg. At the top, there was what used to be called the boyish bob, sticking out of a white aviator's helmet circa 1918. Then a bright red leather jacket opened wide at the throat. Black riding breeches, black boots. A color of hair that stuck out and said this one was taffy. I asked if you lost something. Have you? Well, come to think of it, yes. Six foot two, eyes are blue, and carries a big, big checkbook. <laughs> Seen one around? Maybe. Why? Who are you? Name's Philip Marlowe, the millionaire's friend. I'm a yacht salesman. Here's my card. Never mind your card or the very funny jokes. Now, what do you really want? Paige Pembroke, before he breaks his neck in your act, or isn't he in it yet? I don't remember. Now, your point. What is it? A letter you could have written. A letter that says Paige is in trouble. Where is he? Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. Take it easy, Wings. Ah, you wouldn't want to hold out on somebody who's only trying to help Brother Paige, would you? I mean, what reason could you possibly have? Other than five million bucks, you might want for your very own. Why, you... <coughs> I said goodbye. What's the matter, Taffy? You having problems? Yeah. This Mr. Yacht Salesman is Emmett Kingston, head of affairs Midway. And you'd be surprised how popular he is with the concessionaries. Now where you going? What else? Good day, Miss Taffy, Mr. Kingston. <laughs> You know, sometimes it works. Lead with your chin, ride with a punch, and watch for your opening. And I figured I'd try it just that way. So ten minutes later, when Emmett Kingston, who was carnival people from checkered vest past on eight, watched Bob the high-button shoes, and shaped like a bowling pin, left Taffy and started trundling down the midway, I went after him. When he stopped in front of a lunch wagon, I stopped too. And when he went in, approached a man playing pinball machine who was maybe five foot four, and from where I stood conscious of it, I was still behind him. At the pinball machine, a stranger with a thin face that wore a nervous toothpick was also watching the little man's game. Oh, boy, Doc, it's preaching. So when I moved closer to the trio, my face turned away from Kingston. Nobody well, seemed to mind. I see Jack of many trades, I see. What? Oh, oh, Mr. Kingston, uh, how are you, sir? Fine, Hershey, just fine. 800 more is jackpot, Doc. Come on, come on. Uh, you wanted to speak to me, Mr. Kingston? No, Hershey, nothing important except about last night. Uh, uh, last night, sir? Yeah. You were working late for a parachute rigger, weren't you, boy? Or uh, am I wrong to consider two o'clock in the morning an odd hour for you to be folded in these silks? Hey, Doc, you're going to shoot it, aren't you? Which? Of course she is. Go on, I'll shoot for the uh, gentleman. Uh, yes, sir. 
Hey, 2,000... Three thousand, four thousand. Hey, that's great. Now do that again with your last ball, Doctor. Uh, uh, was there something else, Mister Kingston? Yes, uh, she. Why were you near the shoots at that hour? And uh, don't bother denying that you were, because Eddie Knapp saw you there. Well, son. Well, I, I was there to double check the riggings, Mister Kingston. Hey, look, I'm sick and tired of Midge Maynard complaining about the way I pack her shoot. It's a stupid excuse, just trying to cover the fact that she's losing her nerve. Hey, hey boys, don't ignore me. Reach out for the jacket. Shut up, you, and get going. Uh, Rosie, uh, get this uh, stumble bum out of here, will you? Sure, Mr. Kingston, whatever you say. Oh, yeah, this social, huh? All right, all right, Doc, I'm going. My own free will, too. I could stay if I wanted to. Uh, I see what you were saying. Well, just this, Mr. Kingston. Uh, Mitch Maynard and Taffy Starr fighting because of that Pembroke fellow, or, or because Eddie Knapp is crazy about Taffy, is one thing. But but bringing me and my work into it is different. Meaning? The parachutes Mitch and Taffy use are identical. In the act, both girls jump from the plane wing at the same time. But Midge always gets scared and opens his shoes sooner than Taffy. So Taffy is on the ground long before Midge. But this has nothing to do with the way I rigged the shoots, and I think... All right, you're... all right, Hershey. Nobody's blaming you. And I... uh, say, you... Yeah? You uh, wouldn't be trying to sell another yacht in here, would you? Just waiting for the finish of an exciting pinball game. Is that all right, or is it time to call Rosie again? No, no, it's quite all right. We're leaving. Uh, you try for the jackpot. Uh, come on, Hershey. It's about time for the five o'clock show. Oh, yes, Mr. Kingston. Hmm. Only 40000 to go. <laughs> oh, it's the first time I ever hit the jackpot. Oh, that's pretty good, Mr. Marlowe, considering that it wasn't your nickel you won on. Oh. Now that you mention it, Mr. Pembroke, it wasn't. We should take care of the introduction. Okay? Yeah. And that leaves very little. But something. But definitely. Marlowe, you can tell Aunt Hattie from me that at the moment I don't need a watchdog. And when and if I do, I'll go to the nearest city pound for one, not to a private detective agency. I told myself it was foolish to slam the door on my way out. So I slammed the door on my way out. I started north down the midway toward the open stand and the five o'clock sharp performance of the plunging comet. When I got there, the act was already underway with the silver biplane taking off. Eddie Knapp and White at the controls, Taffy in a red jacket and parachute crouched on one wing, Mitch Maynard in blue jacket and shoot on the other. Then as they slowly gained altitude, high-button shoes himself took over the PA. They did it up well. By the time the plane was at about 3,000 feet, every pair of eyes was riveted skyward, and an expectant hush thicker than winter fog had settled everywhere. Drawn up tight, arms close into their sides, they jumped. Specks in the sky growing bigger as they fell. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 feet, and then from Taffy's shoot cloth, long and colored, a huge flag rippling in the wind from the end of a long rope. The flag seemed to rise above her as she fell until the slack was gone, and then suddenly her shoot opened, billowing. And then Mitch, another flag rippling from the end of a long rope, and then, then the flag drifting free. Major shoot not open. Mace plummeting down. Down to the hard ground. 
slammed home all the way around, kicking hard at every stomach. A minute ago, a girl, very much alive. Our smashed still body. Someplace near me, a woman cried. There was a bitter, sick, sweet taste in my mouth as I headed to the hangar where I'd first met Taffy. At the moment, I figured the guy who packed the parachutes was a good man to see. When I got there, the only one present was Emmett Kingston. Stop right there, boy, and tell me straight and fast just who you are. Philip Marlowe, Los Angeles private detective, Mr. Kingston. You can prove that? Sure. Here. This is my business card, state license, county permit. I'm working for Paige Pembroke's aunt. She wants his nibs kept out of trouble. Which has what to do with your being here now, Marlowe? Here at this hangar, I mean. Close to where the parachutes are kept. I'm not sure, Kingston. I've only got a hunch. A hunch that Midge Maynard's death was no accident. Yeah, I got more than that already, Mr. Detective. I've got proof. Oh? You see this flag? It's uh-huh. the one that came off Midge's chute. There's a long rope attached to it. Yeah, I know. I saw the act. Pulls the chute open after the flag's flown a while, right? Sometimes, but not tonight, Mr. Marlowe. Tonight it couldn't. Why not? Wasn't it attached to the chute? It was. One end of the chute release cord, the other to the base of the flag. What went wrong? Nothing. Nothing, Mr. Marlowe, except that the long rope on Midge's chute was cut in two by a very sharp knife. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Birds on the Wing. Midge Maynard's grim accident turned out to be grimmer murder. I left Kingston and headed for a phone to call my client. Everywhere the chill of the viciously spectacular death lay like a soggy blanket. At the exposition office, I found the phone and finally got through to Hattie Pembroke. She listened up to the word murder and then, between gasps, insisted on coming out to help me. When I hung up, I turned to see that the pilot, Eddie Knapp, had been standing in the door, listening. He looked sick. What's it to you, mister? What's what to me? Midge. The long drop she took out there. And Pembroke. I heard you say Pembroke. What do you got to do with him? Just a minute, fella. I'm not sure it's any of your business. It's my business, all right. The kid gave me a big grin up there just before she jumped. And I watched her fall every inch of the way. So did everybody else. Look, I know how you feel, Eddie. You don't have any idea how I feel. Don't try to kid me. That mob out there loved it. That's the only reason they come to watch, the hypocritical buzzards. You got a finger in this pie. and angle all your own. I'm going to find out what it is. Take it easy, Nap. You're talking yourself into something real silly. Yeah? Listen, ever since that louse Pembroke showed up here, there's been trouble brewing. Now Midge is dead. She was a friend of mine. Best friend I had. Aren't you pulling a switch, Buster? What happened to your red-hot passion for Taffy Star? Oh, you nosy... Come in, you jerk. Look out for my arm. Yeah, boy, and unless you want to take over the busted wing, stand still. Now, get this, Eddie. I've got no beef with you yet. In fact, we might even be on the same team because I want Pembroke out of here just as much as you do. Now, hold off. Who are you? Private detective named Marlowe. I got news for you. Midge fell because her shoot was fixed. She was murdered. Mur- you heard me. Where? Where's Hershey? He packed the chutes. Have you talked to him? No, I can't find him. You mean he's run away? With that filthy half-pint now, psycho? Now, for your own sake, Eddie. Leave Hershey to me and the police. You know where he's staying? No, no, I don't. In town someplace. But didn't he ever tell you where? Come on, think, Eddie. Well, 
Yeah, he told me he had a buddy in town. Some guy who runs a pool hall. I didn't pay much attention. That's enough for a starter. I'll find him. And keep a lid on your temper, Eddie. I'll see you. As I crossed the grounds to my car, I looked back once at Eddie Knapp standing in the office door. Rubbing the shoulder, I twisted for him. I hoped he'd stay out of circulation until I got back because... Barnstorming flyer was charged up like a high-tension wire. The way he felt it be sparks no matter who he touched. Taffy, Pembroke, or Lyle Hershey. But my immediate worry was the location of the lambing parachute packer, so I drove into Oxnard. Found a phone booth and went through the book calling pool parlors. I finally hit pay dirt at a joint called Pindy's. It's 212 B Street, upstairs in the back. 212 B Street was an apartment, second floor rear over a boarded up fish market. I went up the stairs to the half-open door with my hand around my 38. But the shooting part was all over. Because Lyle Hershey was crumpled in the bedroom door with the slovenly abandon that violent death always has. The look of the puddle of blood under him had been that way over an hour. I started backing out. Just as someone else started up the stairs. So I flattened myself against the wall beside the kitchen door and waited. Lyle! Lyle, it's Taffy. I... Come on in. Take a good look, Taffy. What are you doing in here? Where's Lyle? Great act, baby. Holds water like a duck's back. What do you mean? That wherever there's murder, there's also motive, and you've got it, Taffy. Lots of it. Me? What are you talking about? Maybe he's dead, and maybe you killed him. Keep him quiet, because maybe he fouled up Midge Maynard's parachute on your orders. Consequently, he had you over a barrel. On my orders? You're out of your mind. And maybe you had to get Midge out of the way because you objected to Paige Pembroke and his idle millions haunting into the act. Objected so strenuously that she was doing something about it, such as sending threats to his Aunt Hattie. Let's face it, baby, it fits. But not tight enough, Marlowe. Oh, Paige, darling. Taffy, I got worried when you didn't come back to the car, so I decided... Don't move, Marlowe, or I'll shoot. Pembroke, if you got any sense in that gold-plated skull of yours... I show it, Marlowe. I stood outside and listened to enough of your crackpot theories to know you're nuts. I don't need any advice from you at this point, so keep your long nose out of my business. Now listen, you half-brained dope. Now you just stand there like a good little boy. Taffy and I are leaving, and don't try to follow too fast. Go on, Taffy, outside. I'll follow you. So long, detective. I let him go. Spent 20 useless minutes searching the almost bare apartment for any kind of an answer, but came up with nothing. Hershey's buddy at my feet convinced me there was nothing in Oxnard for Marlowe. The sooner I dumped the whole mess into the laps of local law and order, the better. So I kicked out the ten-cent lock on the flimsy door and went down the stairs. I cut through an alley to the street and started across to where my car was parked. I was bracketed by a pair of headlights on a sleek Nash convertible. Hey there, Marlo! Marlo, what you doing here, boy? Nothing. Even that's an exaggeration, Kingston. What about you? I thought you had a show tonight. I certainly do, but the police don't give a hoot about that, boy. No. They insisted that I bring the rest of Midge Maynard's parachute harness in for investigation. Mm-hmm. Hey, get in. Come on, will you, son? Maybe you can help me out. Okay. I want to see the police myself. Oh, is this Midge's stuff here? That's it. Don't mind holding it, do you? No. You know, this is a waste of time, boy. All they have to do is pick up Lyle Hershey and they'll get all the answers. They'll have to pick him up, all right, but he'll give him problems, not answers, Mr. Kingston. Lyle Hershey's dead. He was murdered. You say Lyle... Yeah, yeah, I just came from his place. Somebody shot him. Great suffering sardines. Well, uh, that means there's another killer. And still on the loose. I knew I shouldn't let him do it. But who do what? Why, Taffy's going to give an air performance tonight. They pulled me into the grounds just as I was leaving and told me. 
That uh, Pembroke fellow's going up in Midge's place. You mean those two showed up out yeah. there? It doesn't make sense. Well, Pembroke's got plenty of nerve in his own shoot, so I guess... Shoot? He... Yeah, he's... Uh... Wait a minute, wait a minute, Kingston. Stop under that streetlight, will you? Why, uh-huh. What is it, Marlowe? What are you looking at? Sure, sure. Red smudges on the inside of these straps. There's something wrong here, Kingston, but I can't quite peg it. Say, Kingston, what time is that performance going to start? Why, nine o'clock. Five minutes and five miles to go. Come on, boy, turn the heap around and romp on it. We got a killer to catch. Swing out in front of the hangar, Kingston. Hurry. It's empty. They're already out on the runway. Yeah. There's one parachute still on the rack. Why, that's Eddie Knapp's chute, and he never goes up without it. So who's at the controls of that plane out there? I don't even have to guess. Teddy Knapp, all right, but he figures a suicide doesn't need a chute. Pile out, Kingston. It's as far as you go. I'm taking over from here. What are you talking about? Come on, move. Get out. They're turning around now. He's going to make us run back this way. So long, Kingston. Here he comes. What are you doing? possible chance for a miss. And I headed the car straight into the path of the plane, pulled the hand throttle out as far as it would go, and jumped. There on, it was easy. The plane sort of stumbled over the car, rolled up on its nose, and stayed there. Quick work by the volunteer crash crew took care of that. Box of bandages took care of the collection of minor cuts and bruises all around, and the Oxnard police took care of Eddie Knapp. Everything had come out more or less even, except my client, Hattie Pembroke. She showed up at the finish line slightly on the bias, which no doubt was her normal late evening state. Also, she was as full of questions as an insurance adjuster. Now, young man, I paid you a substantial sum of money for this day's work, and therefore, as your employer, I'm certainly entitled to a comprehensive report of the entire business. And I insist... All right, all right, Hattie, Hattie, whoa. (laughs) I'll run through it once more, and that's all. Now, look. First, the threatening letter you got was written by Midge Maynard because she was afraid Paige was going to break up the act. You get it? But the real screwball was Eddie Knapp. He was crazy about Taffy's tar and insanely jealous when your nephew and his money showed up. Knapp decided if he couldn't have Taffy, nobody else would because he'd kill her. And yet, Midge Maynard was the one who got killed. You catch on quick. Knapp killed Hershey because he was afraid Hershey had seen him tampering with the shoots. You get that? No. Oh. On second thought, Milo, maybe you better submit a written report tomorrow. Yeah, with adding machine and clothes. Now, look, Hattie, it's not hey, that... Hey, Marlo. Marlo, Paige and I want to apologize. We treated you pretty badly tonight, and, well, you did save our lives. Business is business. Yeah, that's right. He was hired to do a job, dear, and he did it. I'm only interested in one thing, Marlo. How'd you know it was Eddie Knapp? Well, nobody had a really good motive for killing both Midge and Hershey, so... When I realized the shoots had been switched, I knew Midge's murder was a mistake. There, it was easy. How'd you find that out, Marlo? Red smudges on the inside of the harness shoulder strap. Red that had to come from your leather jacket there, Taffy. The one Midge always wore was blue. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, Hattie, write the detective a check so he can go. That's the best idea you've had to date, Pembroke. And include on it the price of a repair job on Kingston's car, a new tweed suit to replace this one that lost knees and elbow on the runway when I jumped. Also, don't forget the bonus you promised for keeping your job alive, Hattie. Oh, just a minute, Marlowe. As for you, Pembroke, the only reason I'm not filing an assault and battery charge against you is that you've got great grounds for a countersuit. What do you mean? This! Bless you, my boy. Mail me the check. Good night. (laughs) 
few informal cups of coffee at the Oxnard Police Headquarters cut through most of the paperwork. But at that, it was after two when I finally picked up my car and drove the inland highway for home, past dark, quiet farms, where down-to-earth people made down-to-earth livings and slept at night. Yeah, the countryside was full of them. So it was with a real sigh of relief that I finally opened the door to my apartment and looked forward to some peace and quiet. Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, aren't you Gracie Allen? Yes. Well, how'd you get into my apartment? Well, you see this key? Yeah. Well, it didn't fit, so I opened the door and walked in. Yeah, well, that figures. Uh, what can I do for you? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you're a famous detective, and I think you're just the man to handle a very important case for me. Oh, really? Well, I'd be very happy to, Gracie. What's your problem? Well, you see, Mr. Marlowe, our sponsor won't let my husband, Sugarthroat Burns, sing on our program. Mm -hmm. And I want you to investigate the possibilities of another radio program George can sing on. Mm -hmm. And then our sponsor will realize he's wonderful and let him sing on our show. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Gracie, and the next time you pass my house, I'll be very grateful. Oh, thank you, and I'll be looking for you, too. Goodbye. Goodbye. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lois Corbett, Rita Lynn, Don Randolph, Junius Matthews, Jack Moyles, and Jimmy Eagles. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard and moved from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street, a blonde liar on ice skates in a corpse in a burned-out shack, and it all wound up right where it began, in the heart of the kid on the corner. Stay tuned for Phil Harris and Alice Faye next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Good health to all from Rexall. Yes, it's Sunday. Time for the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Presented by the makers of Rexall Drug Products and your Rexall family druggist. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Scharf and his music, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. This morning, there was a little excitement in the Harris household. Alice and Phil were in the kitchen, just finishing breakfast, when an excited William burst in on them. 
Alice, it's so exciting. I don't know how to tell you. I Oh, it's got me all a flutter. Well, calm down, Willie. Take it easy. Yeah, simmer down, books. You're getting your glasses all steamed up. <laughs> now, take it easy. What's with you? I have wonderful news. Romance has come into my life. I'm going to become engaged. <laughs> oh, now, Willie, isn't it rather sudden? I never expected this. I did. I knew it was going to happen when he caught the bouquet at Betty Sharp's wedding. <laughs> You were going steady with a girl. Who is she? Miss O'Connor. She's my assistant in the bookkeeping department at Rexall. Uh, Philip met her. Bill, what does she look like? Like the kind of a girl who'd go out with a guy like Willie. <laughs> <laughs> a very attractive little Irish girl. Oh, Irish, is it? Beth, and what does this little Colleen look like, Philip? Well, Makushla. <laughs> well, look, honey, she's kind of hard to describe. Um... Um, do you know that song, A Little Bit of Heaven Fell from Out the Sky One Day? Yes. Well, when it fell, it must have hit her right in the kisses. <laughs> William, you've only known this girl a few weeks. Surely you're not serious about being engaged. Oh, but I am. I even bought the engagement ring. Here it is. Isn't it a beautiful ring? Yeah, and look, there's a place for a stone, too. Well, it has a stone. It may be small, but it's a beauty. Alice, don't you think this is a beautiful diamond? Well, what do you think of the diamond? Give me a chance. I haven't found it yet. <laughs> you think it's awfully small, Willie? Well, I could have gotten a larger one, but I don't believe in a vulgar display of jewelry. Oh, in other words, you don't believe in being ostentatious. <laughs> what was that last word? Ostentatious, capital A-U-S-T-I-N, and you take it from there. <laughs> the word is ostentatious, and I doubt if you even know what it means. Know what it means? Are you kidding, Clyde? <laughs> ostentatious. It's a French word, meaning why spend a lot of cabbage for a ring when you can get the same thing for a nickel out of an iron claw machine? <laughs> I'd like to meet your girlfriend before you get engaged. Why don't you bring her over here tonight? Well, splendid, Alice. We'll, we'll announce our engagement from here. Uh, by the way, do you mind if I leave the ring with you for safekeeping? I paid $42.98 for it, and I don't want to lose it. You paid all of $42.98 for a diamond ring? My, what a horrendous price. <laughs> Give it to me, Willie. I'll take care of it. Got it with your life, Philip. Well, I'll run along now and see you tonight. Oh, think that at last I have found romance. I'm just a vagabond lover. <laughs> oh, no. The Rudy Valley of Encino. Don't make fun of him, Phil. He's so happy about the whole thing. Gee, I hope nothing happens to break up his romance with Miss O'Connor. What if it does? Willie can get another girl. There are plenty of fish on the beach. You mean in the sea? On the beach. When he gets them, they're washed up. <laughs> now, look, honey, I don't Mommy, mind him... We just saw Uncle William, and he was singing. 
What's the matter with him? Yeah, what's cooking with old vagabond lover? <laughs> he looks sick. If you had a voice like his, you'd look sick, too. <laughs> now, Phil, please. Girls, your Uncle William is in love. He's going to get engaged to be married. What's engaged? It's the ether before the operation. <laughs> Nice romantic explanation. Now look, children, an engagement is when a man asks a woman to marry him. Like, well, just like when your daddy asked me to become his wife. Oh, I'll never forget his proposal. Mommy, how did daddy proposal to you? Oh. Well, honey, he was very romantic. He got down on his knees and said, Blondie, this is your big chance. <laughs> on you for two bucks for a marriage license. Yeah, and your mother was smart enough to take advantage of a golden opportunity. <laughs> no, but all kidding aside, Alice, uh, how did you know that I was in love with you? That was easy, Phil. A little bird told me that you love me. That you love me. And I Believe that you do That you do This little bird also told me I was falling Really falling Falling for no one but you None but you There's no use denying I might as well confess Of all the boys I know, dear I'm sure I love you best A little bird told me that you love me That you love me And I Believe that it's true A little bird Told me we'll be married And I believe that it's true This little bird also told me When we marry We'll have a pretty cottage Not too far All fenced in like a movie star Great Dane pup will call an ace Lying there by the fireplace Goldfish pond and a wishing well Everything is gonna turn out swell A little bird Told her she'd be married do, 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 do. And we believe that is true This little bird Also told her when she married We'll be the proudest couple in the land we Go through life hand in hand Oops. Have a ranch way out west Pick the spot that we love the best A peachy keen and all is well Everything is gonna turn out swell And this is true we know A little birdie told us so Oh, I love that little void Come along, girls. I want you to get ready for Sunday school. And Phil, Phil, please put Willie's ring away someplace. Okay, okay, I'll put it away. I'll put it away. <laughs> Bet this thing's going to... <laughs> Bet this thing's going to look awful silly on a girl's hands. I'm going to slip it on my finger just to see how silly it does look. Fine ring. How any guy'd have the nerve to give a ring like this to a girl. Hi, Curly. Oh, oh. Hello, Frankie. 
Alice told me you were in the kitchen and I were. <laughs> what you got on your finger? An engagement ring? May I throw you a linen shower? <laughs> All right, Remley, cut it. I ain't no mood for comedy. Cut it out. Wish somebody give me an engagement ring. I said cut it out. <laughs> Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. <laughs> Take it easy for a minute, will you? Mm-hmm. This is Willie's engagement ring, and I'm just holding it for him. Willie's getting engaged? Yeah. To what? <laughs> to a girl. At least I think she is. <laughs> She's got a girl's name. What's he want to get engaged for? That could lead to something incurable like marriage. <laughs> and what's wrong with marriage? You don't even know what marriage is. Ah, but I do, my friend. <laughs> marriage... It's like a boat with red sails. Now, what does that mean? How should I know? What, am I a philosopher or something? <laughs> That's the trouble with single guys like you. You laugh at marriage. Laugh. Wouldn't do you no harm to find a nice girl and settle down. Why should I? This way I can play the field and go out with a different girl every night. But, Ramley, having a wife is a guaranteed investment for the future. Why buy an oil well when there's a gas station on every corner? <laughs> I can't understand you. What's the matter with you, Remley? What are you thinking about? Wouldn't you like to settle down and have a family? A lot I might like. <laughs> I knew you were a softy. Just think, Frankie. Just think. You get married, buy a nice home in the country, and after a year or two, you hear the patter of little feet running around the house. Just feet, no babies? <laughs> I give up. Forget about it. Okay. Well, wait a minute. I better take Willie. Hey, Remy. What? That Willie's ring is stuck on my finger, and I can't get it off. Won't come off. What am I going to do? Guess you'll just have to marry Willie. <laughs> I'll cut my finger off first. <laughs> hey, I know. I get it. I'll go over to the sink and rub a little soap on it. It'll slip right off. You want me to help you, Curly? I'll pull the ring off. Oh, no, you don't. Stop right there. Every time you help me do something, I wind up behind the eight ball. You'd probably drop it down the drain. I'll take it off myself. All right. Rub it a little. Coming off. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it. Oh, no, down the drain. <laughs> oh. Took you two bounces to get it in. I could have done it in one. <laughs> Frankie, will you be serious a minute? I got to get that ring out of that pipe. Willie's supposed to give it to his girl tonight. Unless that dame's a plumber, she ain't going to get engaged. <laughs> Now, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Curly. Dropping that poor girl's ring down the drain and she hasn't even seen it yet. Hey, I better call her and tell her to hurry over to the corner of 5th and Main. 
What for? So she can lift the manhole cover and get a glimpse of it as the ring floats by. <laughs> what a romantic way to get engaged. <laughs> Oh, Curly, it can't float away. It's probably stuck in the trap at the bottom of the sink. Yeah. That's right, that little thing. Oh, curve. Sure, all we got to do is take the trap off. That's it. Hey, let's go get my wrench. I don't know. I get into more trouble than Elmer. I'd ask you who Elmer is, but I know it would only lead to a song. Well, it's going to lead to one anyway. <laughs> Now Elmer Jones arose at dawn and put his hunting britches on Then looked up at the shotgun on the wall He made his mind up then and there to bag himself a hunk of bear At hunting he had plenty on the ball He milked the cow and fed the hog Then kissed his wife and called the dog Picked up his gun and started on his quest He crossed the creek and hit the trees Threw back his head and sniffed the breeze Let out a yell and pounded on his chest Here comes Elmer, Elmer's got his gun here comes Elmer, run, bear, run. He hunted all the morning through, but not a bear came into view while Elmer's thoughts were on the kitchen range. For he was sick as he could be of lamb and chicken fricassee and craved a mess of bear meat for a change. Poor Elmer's mind was in a fog. He paused and sat out on a log to get his faculties back in the groove. He heard a noise, and standing there before him was a grizzly bear and thought it time that he'd better make his move. Here comes Elmer, Elmer's got his gun. Here comes Elmer, run, bear, run. He grabbed his gun and turned around, but Mr. Bear just stood his ground, and Elmer said, it's either me or thou. The gun refused to go, and so he knew that somebody had to go and said, farewell, I'm leaving as of now. Then Elmer's shoulders sprouted wings, his feet developed inner springs. To linger longer, he was disinclined. He ran so fast through muck and mire, his ankles set his socks afire, and still that bear kept coming on by. Here comes Elmer, Elmer's got his gun. Here comes Elmer, run, bear, run. A deer with antlers eight feet wide got in the way of Elmer's stride as both of them went heading for the brush. Then Elmer said, now listen, son, if that's the fastest you can run, move over, because I'm really in a rush. Bear was gaining inch by inch and finally reached out for the clinch as Elmer saw the fence around his place. He leaped the fence and landed hard, jumped 60 feet across the yard and slammed the kitchen door in Bruins' face. Here comes Elmer, Elmer's got his gun. Here comes Elmer, run, bear, run. The bear was trying to get inside while Elmer sought a place to hide and Mrs. Jones began to pull her hair. She said, this fuss has got to stop. Why don't you let the matter drop? And Elmer said, honey, go tell it to the bear. Then Elmer's wife said, listen, goon, how come you think you're Daniel Boone whose appetite on bear meat used to thrive? He said, honey, I'm sure that you're aware that Daniel always killed his bear, but I done brought this baby home alive. Here comes Elmer. Elmer's got his gun. Here comes Elmer. Run, bear, run. That's a very interesting tale. <laughs> <laughs> now, shall we take the trap off? Okay, funny man. Just give me that wrench and I'll... Phil! Get out. Phil, did you put... What are you doing with that wrench? Well, I... I gotta take the trap off of the sink. Uh, um... Uh, Willie's ring is down the drain. <laughs> oh, no. How did it get down there? Um... 
I couldn't say. <laughs> I could. Curly dropped it now. <laughs> Francis Waldo. <laughs> you have snitched again. <laughs> well, honey, we can... How do you do these things? Now, look, we've got to get that ring out of the drain before William comes over with his girl. I'll call a plumber. We don't need no plumber. All Frankie and me has to do is just remove that little trap. Now, now wait a minute. You fellas know what you're doing? Alicia. <laughs> Lee, to get the trap off, all we have to do is bend this elbow. Yes, but do you know how? <laughs> Did you hear that, Frankie? Do we know how to bend an elbow? <laughs> Alice, you're looking at two of the most experienced elbow benders in the country. <laughs> you know how. Oh. I don't know. I'm a little worried. Something tells me I shouldn't let you do this. But we have to get that ring back. Now, go ahead. But be careful. And don't get any water on my kitchen floor. Don't get any water on my kitchen floor. Don't get any water on my kitchen floor. <laughs> Always happens. Agonist, Curl. Her father's a policeman, I told you. <laughs> Don't get any water on the kitchen floor. Nag, 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 nag. Sometimes I wonder why we ever married that woman. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Every minute. <laughs> now, come on, Remley. Let's get at that pipe. Right. Hmm. What's the matter? Hey, look under there. There are four pipes under there. Four? Yeah. Which one do we take out, Remley? I don't know. <laughs> Let's be on a safe side and take them all out. <laughs> Hand me the hammer. I'll loosen them up. Here. Oh, Remley, why do I always listen to you? When will I ever learn? Stop sitting there beefing. Swim over here and help me. You can help yourself. I ain't getting off of this refrigerator. Look at that water. It's up to your waist. So we got the kitchen a little damp. A little damp. We got the ring out of the pipe, didn't we? Yeah. When the water rushed out, we heard it fall on the floor, but we haven't found it yet. Been looking for it for an hour. Be patient. Oh, patient, he said. You keep looking, you'll find it. Go ahead, dive in again. <laughs> this time, try a jackknife. You get more depth. <laughs> Look, will you cut out the clowning? I told you we got to find the ring. I got an idea. Let's open the door to the hole and let the water run out. Then we'll be able to find the ring. Oh, no, you don't. We're not going to flood the whole house. Don't touch that door. If anybody should open that door, hey, they ain't... Hey, everybody, I'm the Hey, leave them out in the hall, Julius. Don't come in here. Don't open the door. Why not? What are you guys up to now? <laughs> what are you... Doing? Look at him go down the hall. 
looks like a salmon swimming upstream. <laughs> Quiet, will you? Do you want Alice to come down here? Be quiet, he says. They're trying to drown me and they want me to be quiet. <laughs> what are you, a couple of wise guys or something? Well, we warned you not to open that door. How was I to know you got a rescue boy in your kitchen? <laughs> Next time I make a delivery here, I'm coming in a submarine. <laughs> Some seal blood in you. Right, Frankie. What do you want to do? Exfixinate him? You can't do that. If that pipe stopped up, there's only one thing to do. Here, Julius, drink this. What is it? Drano. Uh-huh. Now hurry, go ahead. Drink it, kid. Now drink it. Bottoms up. No bottoms. Whatever it was that stuck in my throat, I just swallowed it. Well, then good. Now leave us alone, will you? We gotta look for a ring. I've been looking, Curly. I looked all over the floor. I can't find it anywhere. Well, it must be here. We heard it drop the floor, just didn't open it up and swallow it. How could it get out of the Swallow? Say, um, seal face. <laughs> that, uh, that, that thing you swallowed, Julius, uh, uh, what did it feel like? Oh, no. Oh, no, he swallowed the ring. How are we going to get it, Frankie? There's only one way we can get it out. You mean? (laughs) Repair for surgery, Dr. Howard. (laughs) Hey, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Lie down, Julius. Get your mitts off me. Don't touch me, Julius. You'll make me unsterile. (laughs) Take it easy, kid. This ain't going to hurt. Of course not, my lad. Just relax. Remember, you're in the capable hands of Dr. Harris, your friendly credit stomach surgeon. You don't have a thing to worry about, Julius. Shall we proceed? Would you like to make the incision, Dr. Harris? No, thank you. You may do the carving. Very well. Little white meat, please. <laughs> Not too much cranberry sauce. You swallowed Willie's engagement ring and we gotta get it. Yeah, because he's supposed to give it to his girl tonight. If we don't get it out of you, it's gonna break up their romance. 
Now, you're not going to be an old meanie and refuse to let us operate on you, are you? Oh, perish the thought! <laughs> Never let it be said that my stomach stood in the way of true love. <laughs> Good boy, Julius. Then you let us do it? You let us operate on you? Go plug up the hole in your head! <laughs> What have you and Frankie done now? The hall is soaked. And Alice told me what you did with my ring. Where is it, Philip? Well, you see, Julius had the ring and... Philip, he... stop stalling. <laughs> Miss O'Connor's promised to marry me as soon as I give her the ring. But, Willie, it's going to take a little time and I... I <laughs> won't wait. I can't get married without that ring and I want to get married now. Right now? Now. <laughs> well, in that case, Willie, there's only one thing to do. Give me your hand. Give me your hand. Philip, wh why are you placing my, my hand on Julius's stomach? Quiet. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to join these two in matrimony. Philip, stop that. Stop I now that pronounce right. you man and abdomen. Congratulations. <laughs> now look, Phil, you're acting like a madman. What's going on oh, here? Oh, honey, Julius swallowed the ring. He swallowed my ring? Julius, you come with me. We're going to see a doctor. Okay, goodbye, everybody. So long, kid. Hey, kid. You make a nice-looking couple. Yeah. Just think, part of me is now Mrs. William Emerson Fay. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, what a nauseating thought. <laughs> Good health to all from Rexall. Horace, you did a wonderful job, and don't forget, everybody, to stay tuned to this station for Fred Allen. Good night, everybody. Thank you. This is Bill Foreman wishing good health to all from Rexall. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, we wrap up the week with Nero Wolf, followed by The Jack Benny Show. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.